You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. What? Everybody? This week, <laughs> we go inside the huddle with Heinz Field and PPG Paints Arena anthem singer Graham Fondry to talk all things opera as part of his postcard from Pittsburgh. And then friend of the show, John Branzi, returns to take a free throw on a shameful industry norm for operatic athletes during away games. Plus, in the two-minute drill, Lemmy Pulliam makes history and breaks the limestone ceiling. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. You can click follow or on Apple Podcasts. You can hit the plus sign, get your voice heard, send a voice memo, or even just email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Get that OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin. Oliver Camacho. So I know we're going to talk about this in just a second, but um, congratulations to Giovanna Jacques for Correctly predicting. Amazing. <laughs> right. Two for Cup. two. You I know? mean, <laughs> you're saying that as though you're surprised that our methodology would have yielded anything other than the correct answer. Uh, so, Matt Cummings. I I mean, like maybe next week we're gonna have to we're gonna have to be doing a special episode to bring you updates on uh, full contact holiday travel, since everyone is frantically rebooking plane tickets to avoid that uh, blizzard that's gonna take the whole Northeast offline. Is that you too, Weston Williams? Well, I'm gonna be scrambling to get this episode done before all the power goes out for the rest My of Chicago Lord. winter, which will last about three years probably at this rate. Um, I just wanted to say uh, thank you to uh, Messi and myself for being equally as important to Argentina's win in the World Cup this uh, this year. Yeah. They couldn't have done it without you. Pray tell who's this. Why, it's Ashley Hardgrave. <laughs> it's been 84 years. Hello, boys. I've missed you. Hello, listeners. We're met now. S- oh, that's right. That's That's how long it's been. Yes, between... <laughs> Between national travel and singing for Santa and Jesus, there's been there's been lots of things happening. In fact, if you're in Chicago and the blizzard hasn't gotten you, by the time this comes out, Chicago Symphony will have two more shows of Merry Merry Chicago. You should come. It's a hoot. Um, but seriously, I have missed you terribly. I am delighted to be back. Okay, just quick quick about Mary Mary. So Alistair Willis is a conductor who, like, you might see his name on an odd recording. Uh, I think he actually is the conductor of the Nashville uh, opera Amal the Night Visitors. That's on the Naxos label, you know. He's one of those names. Like, yeah, that sounds like a vaguely conductorish name, you know. Uh, and then you go see him conduct Mary Mary. <laughs> he is an angel, first is, of all. He is going to fly away as he's conducting. He's so flamboyant. <laughs> and he's apparently heterosexual, too, but just like so much um, gesture. He's just full of gesture. <laughs> once, once you see him conduct these members of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and the Chicago Symphony Chorus, you know exactly why they have hired him for this job. <laughs> it is it is a Pops concert on steroids uh, with a little bit of classical music thrown in, done by high caliber musicians. But he's so fun and he's 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 a really incredible musician. I know that you don't yeah. That that isn't what sticks out to you in these because he's so fun and goofy on the podium. And we got to get him on the show. <laughs> but he's he's a freaking delight. I love yeah. working with him, and I would do it whenever. I, th- I, mean, I was sitting in the balcony, and like the audience was like gleeful about him. It's oh, like... they love yeah. him, and with yeah. good reason. He's a delight. Yeah. Well, our crowds love um, Lionel Messi as well. Here was the thing: so when he was on the podium. Uh, receiving the Jules Rimet trophy for the, as the this winning. is messy, not Alistair Willis. <laughs> this is this is this is messy. So um, one of the dignitaries of Qatar um, gives him a bisht, which is this like regal royal robe that royalty wears, I think, for weddings. And it was the str- it's the strangest image possible. So he's wearing the like Argentina 
soccer jersey and then the bisht on top of it. It kind of reminded me of some of those flowing gowns that Jesse Norman used to wear. The, <laughs> like when she dressed 80s. up as the tricolor for Bastille Day. <laughs> <laughs> An iconic Jesse performance. Literally everything she did was iconic, so. Uh, all I have to say is bisht, please. Yes, I know. <laughs> Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. the national anthem at Ben Roethlisberger's final game as a Pittsburgh Steeler. All right. On weekdays, he's the director of programming for the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust. On nights and Sundays, he's been singing the national anthem for the likes of the Stillers and the Pens. Baritone Graham Fondry joins us from Pittsburgh. All right. Great to see you. Look at that deep voice. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had a cold last week, so I'm nice and low, you know, ready to compete (laughs) for those jobs all of a sudden. You know, uh, actually, notwithstanding, I'm just surrounded by tenors all the time on the show, so it's really refreshing to hear this octave range for me. Oh, great. Hey, you know, I'm I'm always willing to leave a tenor behind, so that's, uh, (laughs) I think that's great. (laughs) Graham, thanks for being on the show. No, I love tenors. My dad's a tenor. I'm, I'm all for tenors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Before we get to the day job, I want to start with the anthem. So there you are, January 3rd, yeah. Big Ben's last game. Yeah. How how important is that to you as a sports fan, but also as an artist singing the anthem? Right. Well, you know, the, the interesting thing was that um, I was kind of on deck to perform with them at some point. It wasn't planned for that night at all. Uh, in fact, um, maybe the week before the Steelers called up and said, hey, you know, we actually had a, a cancellation on January 3rd. You think you could step in and help us out? Because they knew I used to be the Pan- the, the Florida Panther anthem singer for years. So um, I said, sure, I'll do it. But I was really sick, me extremely sick. And I thought I should be all right by the game. But, you know, I was playing it. I was, I was, I was doing it really close. And then someone said to me the next day, they said, you know what? Uh, we heard that Ben Roethlisberger might actually retired that might be his last game and i said wait what and it was monday night right so um we it, that all of a sudden got the pressure up and i started taking all this i cam and i started you know, doing oh all the steam and everything else like that you know trying to how's the voice today oh not there and uh yeah and then it ended up being a big deal i started getting all these calls from everyone hey this this is happening and it's gonna be better last game and you know it's it turned out to be much bigger than i thought it was gonna be and then and then what what ended up happening um which was really exciting ended up being about 18 degrees on the field but very windy because we're on the river and oh, great singing down, they had <laughs> right exactly and they had me down there with no jacket no nothing waiting forever to go out and sing so by the okay. time i got out there i was completely frozen um but riveted and excited to go because i understood how important this was and you have to understand the stadium was absolutely jam-packed for that game because everyone knew how important it was and we 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 did the anthem it rocked we all had a great time doing it had a lot of friends in the stands because everyone goes to the games and uh and then we ended up winning the game too which was just brilliant against uh if if i'm correct it was against cincinnati which was uh even better the hated (laughs) bengals so you've sung for the florida panthers and the pittsburgh penguins as well what's the difference between in a outdoor venue versus an indoor venue Oh yeah, it's the indoor. It's easier. Um, there's less of the uh, um, uh, the the sound outside. It, it travels for longer, so you hear a lot of echo. And uh, inside, you don't hear that as much. So, for instance, I I was singing the the, the anthem for the uh, the Fort Lauderdale Strikers um, soccer team outdoors. You know, a small venue and whatnot. But I was constantly trying battling to stay with my tempo versus hearing myself. 
And so what I did with the Steelers, I, I used uh, sound, uh, sound piped into um, some ear earplugs they gave me. Um, but at, in, in the stadium, I'm sorry, in the arenas, I don't need that. It's totally fine. Hmm. Um, so we wanted to talk to you, besides singing national anthems, uh, yeah. we were looking at your history, <laughs> and you have a very interesting past uh, singing. <laughs> Thanks, Oliver. <laughs> singing the Baz Luhrmann La Boheme on Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us about that experience? I know Matt has some very specific questions about that, but um, I guess it's just like, how do you get cast in that? Like, did you go in there singing, you know, uh, Oh, me, me, to piano I mean, what does Marcello do with an audition, you know? Right, right. Well, it, it, honestly, that was a fluke. Um, a bunch of, I was just leaving grad school at Juilliard and um, a bunch of friends were auditioning. I knew nothing about Broadway. I had no intentions on auditioning or even doing anything with it. But I had prepared Chenard's aria for Apothea St. Louis just the summer prior. And so um, since all my friends and everyone were, were going in to do it, they said, why don't you just come with us and do it as well? You know, no big deal. So, yeah, I did it. And because I had no no thoughts about, oh, I, I could possibly get on the Broadway, I just went in there and did whatever whatever I wanted to do. Wandered around the room, sat on a stool, you know, pulled around. And it turns out on Broadway, they like that. They <laughs> so, love you know, stools on Broadway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We always they, say it. Yeah. They love a singer who moves. They yeah, love exactly, it on Broadway. Exactly. That's not, and, that's not usually what they mean by that, but still. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Uh, thank, oh, thank God it's not that singer who moves. But um, yeah, you know what? What It was just, it was brilliant. I have to tell you the audition, um, uh, uh, the audition process was awesome and it really informed me um, and how I wanted to run auditions when I eventually did run auditions myself for the different companies that I, I led and worked for um, uh, because, you know, there's so many different levels and part of the audition, they'd have you working with different singers that were also auditioning to see how you mesh with each other. You know, mm -hmm. so I got to work with David Miller or, or, or Jesus, Gar Jesus Garcia, Jesus Garcia, you know, or Alfie Bo. We're, and we're just going in and out and doing stuff left and right and trying things out. And and it's really the combinations that ended up being uh, the right thing in the end. And so I was cast uh, and I was working at I was working at Bloomingdale. So it's right after 9-11. No one had any work, you remember. And I was working there putting in ornaments up on the wall when I got the call and I received the offer to cover Chouinard and Marcello and sing the sergeant. Uh, and I was over the moon. I was covering Daniel Coolidge, who has a wonderful um, career right now as Love well. He's a good friend. Um, and Dave um, Ben Davis, who's all over Broadway and TV and everything. Um, so, I mean, it, we just we had a really I mean, just I, I, I could go on and on about all the people in the cast that were fantastic. And they're now the cast. They're all over the place. David, of course, is with Il Divo all over the world. And Alfie Bo is the famous, you know, Jean Valjean and. We have people at the Met and people on Broadway. I mean, it's um, it was a stellar, a, a once in a lifetime experience. And um, you know, once my kids get out of my house and stop taking my money, I, I might want to go back. <laughs> so, what was the rehearsal room like for something like that compared with other opera productions that you've done? Like, was yeah, it that, oh, that's a great question, Matt. Um, I would say first of all, we have tons of time, right? We had oh, was it six weeks or eight weeks of of principal uh, rehearsal. Um, and we just had lots of time to play. One of the, the great things I noticed when we first sat down that we sat down, uh, the cast sat down with Baz and, and Jeffrey Sellers and all the producers and whatnot. And we said we had the script written out, not the not the score, but the actual script at libretto. And we had a translation and then we had the the Nico translation as well, Nico Cassell, uh translation. And so we, we had all that written out. We were kind of talking it through. And then Baz said, all right, well, we know what all this means. That's great. Now, can we say say it how we would say it? What would we say? What would Graham say? Or what would uh, Sean Cooper, what would Sean say? And that's how we 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 ended up breaking it down. And and Matt, that was the most informative thing I had ever done to prepare myself to how to actually perform um, mm -hmm. in another language. Because I had to turn it into my language, not what I interpreted through Nico's translation or my own translation. It had to be, you know, what was indicative of Graham in that case. Um, and what you'll find is uh, the the um, subtitles that were used on the stage, which was really inventive how they did it. They incorporate a lot of the language we used in the oh, subtitles, wow. yeah. which was really great as well. So I, it, awesome. no, it was brilliant. It was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant process. Baz had a great way. Of of making you do what he wanted without you thinking that 
you were doing it for him. You thought, oh, this is my idea. At the end, he's like, oh, yes. No, it was mine. <laughs> you know? uh, he's brilliant. Any good stories there you're allowed to share about, uh, about Baz working with him? <laughs> uh, I mean, Baz was great. He was a really advocate for, for the art, artists themselves. Um, he had more energy than anyone in the room, which was, a, which was amazing. His attention to detail was spectacular. And you would think that, you know, he is Mr. Spectacle, correct? He is, he is the spectacle guy. But he knew how to get down and intimate with so many different parts. Um, and, and he knew how to relate to us as artists um uh and in individuals which was incredibly unique and freeing uh as an artist to be able to work with him um there were there were lots of hijinks as you could probably imagine um there were a lot of crazy things that happened and there was bloodshed sometimes and you know, I mean, <laughs> there, yeah oh but oh, oh i will point out that we actually had a masseuse uh in the basement for before oh. shows which i did take advantage of that a couple times and that was one of the perks that um that and meeting famous people were two of the big perks <laughs> I want us to do that for more opera productions. I'm just going to speak <laughs> that into the universe. Just yeah. have like an on-house or in-house wellness staff. Um, okay, so we've <laughs> talked a little bit about some like fascinating things you've done as a musician. Sure. I want to pivot a little bit to this work you do with the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust as the okay. programming director. Uh, you know, what are some of the keys that you have discovered in creating what is now known as this like vibrant central arts district within the city of Pittsburgh? Right. Well, you know, Pittsburgh Cultural Trust, it's actually a case study in how to uh, do urban renewal, renewal through arts and culture. Mm. And in, in this case, what what the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust did so, trust did so well and, and, and the, the people who created the trust, as we call it, uh, they identified a need and then they identified resources that could potentially serve that need. So in this case, the confluence of both the need and the resource happened to be a downtown red light district, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. tell you stories about what we found in some of these buildings. Um, oh, I bet you can. Yeah. <laughs> a downtown red light district that also had great theaters downtown, including what we now call the Benedum Theater, um, which is our 2,800-seat theater, which does opera on Broadway and ballet. Um, and so we had a lot of, a lot of uh, real estate. We had some great theaters that were already downtown. Um, and so the the people created the trust, including Carol Brown, who was the uh, the first executive director, said we think that we can help revitalize this area, transform it into a cultural district. And the the technique used was what they do is of course they they buy buildings, they stabilize them, right? Some buildings are falling apart, but they have uh, historic facades and whatnot. Right. Um, if they are undesirable tenants. You read red light district um when the lease is up you 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 don't uh, renew the lease and you hold on to that space and and try to do something with it so if it's going to be empty for a while can you create a theater in there can you create an art gallery in there can you can you make space available for art partners from from the region to come in and perform in the district to have a home um in in the center of downtown um and it turns out it was a really really uh, reliable way of of uh, of taking this area that was was near blight and revitalizing it and making it quite relevant and then a shining star a shining example of of how to use arts and culture to help enhance the experience of everyone in a downtown area it's it's an idea that I've I've uh, brought to some leaders in Belize Central America where my mom's from because mm. Belize believe the city of Belize uh, Belize city I should say has a downtown area that is really struggling. And my thought is Belize is really heavy in arts and culture. Um, maybe this type of model could be the one to help revitalize that area as well. How how would you say Pittsburgh compares as an an artistic city to places that you know, like like Belize City or even, you know, any other place you've lived or had experience in? Right. Um, what sets it apart? What makes it the same? Wesson, you know, I have to say I was shocked. My wife went to CMU, uh, Carnegie Mellon University, uh, mm -hmm. for voice. She went to Manhattan School. And when we met in Miami, she talked about Pittsburgh being such a wonderful, wonderful, vibrant city. And all I could think about was Steel Town, you know, from the 80s and 70s. Right? <laughs> and I also being a Dolphins fan, I thought, I don't know. <laughs> um, like, it's like saying, hey, let's go to Jersey. You know, the Jets are great. No, no. Um, <laughs> but, you know, um, when... When I received an offer to come work up here and we moved up, I was shocked 
literally shocked at the amount of arts and culture available per capita. It was staggering. And, you know, I lived in New York City, I lived in Miami, Florida, San Francisco, you know, these great art towns. Um, but what you had available, okay, the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust itself, we have over 2,000 activations a, a year in downtown Pittsburgh. That's just us. Mm. And there are so many other arts organizations, too, that work in the region. So, you know, um, I, I, I heard one board member say to me one time, you know, it, one thing he loves about Pittsburgh is any given day, you can get up in the morning and start going to arts activations and you'll do it until you have to go to bed at night. There's always something for you. <laughs> Graham, I want to do a, a lightning round here before we let you go. First and foremost, we're dropping names. Morris Robinson. <laughs> what does that name mean to you? Morris. Mr. Morris Robinson. Uh just one of the more phenomenal human beings I've met. I mean, obviously a stellar singer, um, but also like a brother. Um, and that, and I, I'm not saying that because I'm special. He tr treats people that way. He's that type of guy. He's a mensch. Uh, Morris and I, I remember, I'm a big guy. I'm 6'4", about 240. You know, I thought, yeah, hey, I'm a big guy, working out, whatever. And I went to play ball in Opathier St. Louis back in the early 2000s. And Morris was there too, singing something. And we went the ball out in the gym and I, Morris was coming down into the post and that's where I was playing defense. I was like, Oh, I got this. No problem. Morris took one. Dribble. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, took one dribble backed up into me. I felt like my chest just collapsed into itself. And I, I had no more than like, you know, like a range of five notes for two days. Morris is huge. Just knocked me over. He's a great guy, though. You know, I mean, he, he he's giving and generous and, and 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 fun. And obviously, I mean, you've all heard him and his sing and seen his artistry. Oh, um, he's, 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 he is. And he's, he's a um, opera is better um, now that we have him here with us. You know, he's just a great guy. Absolutely. OK, Elvin, I got to I, I got to ask you, as this panel's resident Pittsburgher, what is your favorite Yinzer institution oh, of choice? <laughs> OK, so let, okay, now you're going to get me in trouble. You said how many people listen to the show? Um, <laughs> scores of us. Scores. Um, listen, the museums I was so impressed with, by the way. The museums are awesome. Pines, Carnegie, Natural History. The Andy Warhol Museum is beautiful. Andy mm -hmm. Warhol is actually buried right near me. My kids love to visit him, which is which is something, <laughs> you know. Um, the sports teams, of course, you know, I love all that. Um, and in the arts are just top notch from the symphony, the ballet, the theater companies here are amazing. And of course, I love the trust, but I'm not going to include the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust in the conversation because we present a lot and I work here and I don't want to try to, you know, <laughs> I don't want to try to anger anybody. So, but I would say that my favorite institution, the Inser Institution, has to be Pittsburgh Opera. And I know I'm biased. Um, but I'm an opera guy and I, I always have been, uh, from, from the get go and, uh, from New England conservatory with John Moriarty, you know, I mean that, that he's the one that got me into that. And, and, um, Pittsburgh operas were my voice teacher in college, uh, Patricia Craig, where she, where she sang mm -hmm. a lot, mm -hmm. uh, where I heard all about Tito Capobianco and, you know, it's just, it, and then I have to tell you that Christopher Hahn, uh, who leads Pit, uh, Pittsburgh opera, he's been the closest thing to, um, uh, a mentor in the opera field that I've had. And um, I think he has visionary leadership. I've seen some phenomenal productions, including one called In the Grove that recently that blew my mind. I wanted to see it immediately after I saw it. I want to walk back in and watch it again. Um, and uh, they're just they're a wonderful company. And it, it makes me have hope for, for the field, seeing what they do. Super quick, of course, you were also in the production of Rigoletto at Resonance Works. That's right. What's the next gig in the arena coming up? Right. Who are you singing for? So I'm going to sing again uh, for the Pittsburgh Penguins in the spring a couple times. Uh, the Steelers said they have me on deck to perform before the end of the season. Um, I have some uh, professional chamber groups that that they've reached out to me as well. And then there's a lot of little projects here or there that people kind of teasing out, you know, back and forth. We're all coming out after the pandemic and trying to get our footing. So we'll see what pops up. But, you know, I'm I'm, I'm back in the ring and, and ready to, to, to get back to singing and, you know, doing some good work in the community. Graham Fondry is the director of programming for the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust. And he knows more about Pittsburgh than I think I'll ever forget, probably. Graham, thank you so much for being on the show with us. Hey, it's a pleasure being here. Thank you all for having me. I really do appreciate it.
Thanks again to baritone Graham Fondry for hanging out with us. I thought that Fun guy dude. was going to be wearing like all of his like Steelers gear, even though we're not a video. <laughs> I did notice him gently uh, mopping his brow with his terrible towel, though. I did see that. <laughs> it was there. I mean, he just had basically Matt uh, Matt's, you know, 24-7 Pittsburgh garb on. That, uh, it, 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 it's actually required dress in the city of Pittsburgh. You have yeah. to be wearing at least one article of black and gold within a 24-hour <laughs> period or they come get you. Feels right. Ashley, college football is just like a weird place right now. It is a banana crackers place to be at the moment because we're technically like we're out, you know, we're out of the regular season. We are thoroughly in the throes of bowl season for all of the tertiary and quadri bowls that happen. Uh, so everybody's getting in on the mat, all on the action. But we've got a whole lot of things going on right now. So we have the madness that is the transfer portal. And because of the like whack-a-mole that has been college football hires, the transfer portal is bonkers right now a lot of stars are potentially moving away from the football team that made them a star there are also a lot of stars that are leaving to go to the draft and are not playing in their bowl games so it's like the one thing they have that could be like their tribute to their career they're not playing in the bowl game they're going straight into the nfl draft which i technically understand but a lot of people find it a little a little off-putting but then you've got all of these famous people that are being hired and moved around into college football head coach positions. So Drew Brees of New Orleans Saints fame yeah. just got hired at Purdue. Is it because they have the same color scheme? Who can say? But it's a very interesting <laughs> hire. Then you have Deion Sanders, who's leaving the HBC Jackson State that he just coached to an almost championship this weekend. And apparently he's also leaving his son, who is not coming with him, and he's going to Colorado to coach the Buffs. Uh, so it's just, it's a weird time to be looking at and be a fan of college football right now. But of course, it is ball game season. So you know, the only thing that I care about is that the Razorbacks are playing Kansas in the Liberty Bowl. And I will be giving an update on the next OBS about uh, that game. Yes, the Liberty Bowl. Fantasy football update. It's a bye week for the OBS team because we finished first overall in the whole <sighs> thing with Upper Philadelphia. So we're just waiting well, to see who yeah. we're going to play next week. By the way, um, in our friends and family World Cup bracket, my son won the whole thing. So <laughs> good chops. <laughs> I don't know how the young man does it. Hey, pass me that ball. I want to shoot a free throw. Uh, free throw. A few days ago, a uh, future friend of the show, Janae Bridges, posted to <laughs> Facebook that she was about to set sail for a three-month gig or a three months worth of gigs and was about to uh, rent an Airbnb. And it made her stop and say, this is effed up. Why do opera singers have to do this? We're basically paying housing for uh, two places, our own homes and the home that we have to rent when we're abroad. And she says, no, I don't want to rent my apartment out while I'm away. I shouldn't have to. Uh, I'm not a trust fund baby. So my parents don't support me while I'm out there doing these jobs. Uh, my fee should not be affected if housing is provided. We should make sure that artists are treated with dignity and respect, and the fee should include housing. And this was shared 109 times on Facebook. She really did sort of like She inspire. hit a nerve. Yeah, yeah, everybody agrees. This is one of the most shameful norms of our industry that people don't talk about. And so I thought it'd be great to bring on an old friend of the show, not an old friend, a very handsome, young, <laughs> very beautiful friend. In yes. the prime of his beautiful. life. John Brancy, uh, welcome back to Opera Box Score. Hello, hello. So I saw you yesterday uh, singing um, baritone bass. I don't know what you call what you were doing, tenor, uh, <laughs> in the Messiah <laughs> with Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra. And uh, you happen to have a few minutes available today to talk about this, but you're also passionate about this because i saw you also share this on your social media okay i'm gonna throw a hail mary on this one this is okay. uh some, <laughs> there you go you know in the 21st century in the 2020s in the 21st century we're well into it now um we're seeing a very obvious especially in the united states but all throughout the world a very obvious uptick in the cost of living and it's and and simultaneously the sort of stagnation of of fees 
for mm. professional work. I think, especially after the pandemic, a lot of companies are, you know, they, they suffered losses for sure. Um, a lot of them also received a lot of subsidy, which we can talk about a little bit if we want. Um, but I think we're, we're seeing this, this kind of like perfect storm of, of scenarios occur. And then also we have this large supply of, of amazing talent coming into the industry with uh, less and less work uh, coming. So this is a, a kind of an, a perfect storm of things that are happening all at once. But one thing that's really important is the quality of life of the performer when they are on a contract, um, whether it is a young artist or a traveling freelance artist who's come to do a singular contract for an opera company. Mm. Um, <clears throat> in my experience thus far, I'll just say that concert work and symphonies uh, provide housing. And that's been something that has been possible because the contracts are much shorter. Mm. I think one of the biggest um, deterrence from providing housing is the length of stay for uh for these companies and i have to you know give kudos to some of the companies that are out there promoting um this no this norm but some of them are are not doing it in a way that is um reaching the the necessary standard of living at at the current state of things so i think the biggest issue that artists in in our generation face, in fact, is the sort of meteoric rise in the cost of living, not just with housing, but also food and transit um, when we go to major metropolises around mm. the world. Um, so if your company, if you're an opera company that's been around for a decade, many decades, definitely over three to five decades. It should be, I think, personally, this is my personal opinion, it should be prudent for you to provide full housing costs in your city um, for, for those uh, incoming artists that are coming from out of town. Um, and this is going to be also needing to we're going to have to talk about union versus non-union, but this, mm. this is something that, that needs to be said about the, the industry as a whole going to major metropolises um, throughout the world. Um, I know that, if, that um, yeah. Matt and Ashley have some things to add to this conversation, but yeah. I will just shout out that uh, Santa Fe Opera, friend of the show, they do a great job of mm. at least with their principal artists, you know, uh, giving each person, even Fenton in Falstaff had his own. <laughs> even Fenton. His, even Fenton, <laughs> who's like, has maybe what, 10 minutes of music? <laughs> no, it's longer than that. But, you know, it's not a gigantic role, you know. Fenton had, had his own casita, like his own casita. He could have invited his whole family mm. to stay with him to sing Fenton, you know. I was surprised. I thought it's like, oh, you must have been, you must be sharing with somebody. No, it's like my own place, you know? So hmm. good on Santa Fe. Um, get Janae Bridges in there and treat her right, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, in, in Europe, the singers, shockingly, unless you're in the chorus of a of a company or you're fested, actually, I, I, I take that back, not if, not if you're fested, unless you're in the chorus, you actually are not part of a union in Europe. So you're, you're going there completely as a freelancer um, and your, your rules and the way that you operate are really based on the country that you're working in, you know, and their, their work labor laws. So we don't have a representative going to these companies, um, like a, a, a major body of, of, of artists, a union representative. I'm not saying our agents don't do this. This is something that also needs to be discussed. But we don't have a union that's saying, hey, these artists need this necessity and it cannot be um, something that they pay out of pocket for 
um, out of their fee uh, that they're getting that's you know a living a, a living wage basically mm. it needs to be something that's over and above and they have the means to do that there because they're dealing with government funding which is different than the system that's here in the states which is dealing with private foundational funding for right. the most part um so really you know having a coalition which exists the soloist coalition coalition Coalition. Am I? Yeah. Yeah. Coalition. <laughs> Got it. You're doing great. Coalition. <laughs> um, I believe that they've tried to get something like this going. Um, but in Europe, I know that the language barriers are going to be difficult and also the work labor laws are going to make it yeah. so that it's it's not as straightforward and because they're dealing with the government. You know, they're they're requiring that the government fund them more so that they can have this. So I think there's a lot more to be done in Europe as a whole to make it possible. Um, and I think that that's a larger, uh, a larger scenario that's harder to tackle. But in the States, I feel as though we could have an opportunity to do a mass fundraising, uh, a mass fundraising campaign that's a nationwide effort, company to company, that everybody's signing up for, that is essentially putting together a foundation to ensure proper and safe and secure living conditions for artists Who's going Who's gonna forward. lead something like that, like Opera America? I think Opera America would be a good choice, honestly, okay. if, they, if, they, if they prioritized uh, artists over companies. Well, let's just zoom back a little bit to uh, Janae's original post. Uh, and I'm going to pass over to Matt because mm-hmm. I think that one of the reasons why it was so it, it hit such a nerve with people is because of the diversity aspect of her post mm-hmm. and talking about mm-hmm. how, you know, we know that she's one of the great artists of our time, but she's also a black woman. Mm-hmm. And she says right there in the post that she's not a trust fund baby. And uh, what what if were you gonna you were gonna dive into that aspect of it, right, Matt? Yeah, and not only that, but just like that, she is a black woman singer experiencing like an incredible career, and that this still is a continued barrier, even at yeah. the level at which that she and you and many other of these singers, like other names in the comments of this post, whose names I recognize from from posters that I've gone to sing, gone to see are saying like it doesn't get any better once you get past the young artist phase in some ways it gets worse Hmm. on it like and singers like reggie mobley saying that this was a barrier for him to pursue an opera career versus more of a concert career where it's you know it's a shorter and they uh, provide housing exactly (laughs) yep (laughs) yeah i yes and and same you know i I have said a few times, like, and and these are some of the things that contribute to the factor of me not pursuing the solo career in the way that I had initially wanted to. I I sound like a broken record, but this was one of the things. I I had a job opportunity in front of me that was going to pay for my travel to go and do things. And it was in the, uh, what I call the civilian world, the non-arts world. Uh, And Mm -hmm. then I had the opportunity to go, like, to New York for an audition. And then if I had gotten that gig, I would have had to have provided my, my own housing. And I was like, there is no... Again, you know, to echo, you know, Bridges sentiments, I'm not a trust fund baby. I was I was paying my whole way all by myself. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that, you know, that sort of swayed me away from like, maybe this isn't something I should be pursuing, because rent is due, whether I get the job or not, like I gotta, Mm -hmm. I gotta make these sort of things happen. Something that I want us to think about, and this is this is light years in the future, because yes, I love this idea of like, a national fundraising campaign, some sort of a capital campaign. There were other things that were discussed in the thread about like, you know, opera companies investing in like equity and real estate and finding homes, et cetera, et cetera. All of these I think are are possibilities and great ideas. What I want us to start thinking about is if this sort of initiative starts to go forward and we better support our solos, which I absolutely think we need to do because you guys are doing quite literally the Lord's work out there and we're really appreciative for you. But I want us to think about what this is going to do to the bottom lines, the fiscal health, the bank accounts, and ultimately the programming of these companies. Because I guarantee you, I guarantee you, any company that has any sort of fiscal dire strait 
their programming is going to be affected by this. They're mm. going to offer shorter runs. They're going to offer fewer shows. They're probably going to offer more crowd pleasers. Get ready for a hell of a lot more cozies because those are going to sell out. Seriously, <laughs> they're not going to be adventurous with their programming because mm. they can't take that risk if they're going to be doing this. Now, does that mean we shouldn't do Absolutely. We should all be fighting for this housing. I think it's really important, but I also think it's important for us to acknowledge that one of the first things that I anticipate houses are going to counter with is this programming that just all of a sudden started getting bold and adventurous in some A houses. We may see it snap back if we are pushing them to do these sorts of things. I laugh because John has a very controversial stance on Cozy, which we can say for another show. But um, <laughs> as we conclude, I don't want to take too much of your time, John. Um, just, uh, you know, we the, the, the problem begins with us telling the audience this is a thing because I think for a lot of people listening, they're going to be surprised to know mm. that this is actually a norm in the opera business. And uh, thanks to Janae for, you know, calling it out. And because she is who she is, you know, it gets this much attention and even opera wire, you know, is republishing her Facebook posts so that more people mm. read about this. But what about you, you know, John, John Brancy, that if you're ever in Chicago, <laughs> you, you have a place to stay. I mean, <laughs> sometimes i kick a little bit in the middle of the night but uh you always have a place <laughs> yeah you know i think having friends in cities is the saving grace honestly it it, it really is in it, it shouldn't be something that we have to rely on but if we could find a happy medium where it was you know if there was a coordinator or a a, a a person that was at the company acting on behalf of the artists um, in this manner, not just in the house, but outside. And, and a lot, there are people that do incredible work um, at, at companies that are administrators. And I, I, I don't want to throw all of them under, you know, uh, in, in this comment because it's not fair, but, to find a way to um, get creative, I guess, on, because, you know, I, I recently also saw some, another really, really prominent soprano was talking about pet sitting, like as an option um, hmm. and, and becoming a, 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 a pet sitter and using that app. I don't know the name of the app, but there's an actual app where you can sign up to become a pet sitter. Trusted but, house sitters. Like, yep. Trusted house sitters, you know, yep. so that, we shouldn't have to do that. You know, that shouldn't be the case. No. You know, especially if you have allergies, you know, you don't want to be having to watch cats. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I love cats, but, you know, it's, <laughs> I, I, they can make me sneeze a lot. Um, but if there is a way to develop a, as well as this kind of like capital campaign, but to develop a, um, a directory and a database of, people who have open housing um, that are willing to share it and make it available that, you know, it's, it's a step in the right direction. I know that that's, that's not getting, you know, a fully furnished apartment with a view of the Bay Bridge and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and all I think of you the solved it. Actually, I, I think we figured it out. We need to create an app uh, for people who want a house opera singers or all of our Camacho's already to, signing up yeah i mean or go, Era back hunk B &B, idea, you know? <laughs> go back go back to this idea of opera america getting involved you know they're involved in film opera now which is great you know they're they're clearly interested in doing things that are you you know what the industry is interested in doing but if this isn't seen as something that is interesting interesting or um or relevant or necessary then they're not going to pay attention to it and it's not going to it's not going to necessarily get done but i actually think it could be really cool and and i also think that it could potentially bring in people that weren't necessarily interested in the opera it's it's like it's mm -hmm. doing this whole thing again and it, it it does kind of it requires, like I'm saying, at the companies, it requires a deputy coordinator. It requires somebody who has tact and who can communicate like an agent on behalf of the artists with these people that have unbelievable properties and 
tons and tons of space. You know, um, I think it's a real way in with donors in that we're that we don't have access to, and you know, maybe house concerts are a part of it as well. But um, I don't know. I think that we have to really get creative with the solutions, especially now. Don Brancy is a Grammy a winning Grammy a winning Grammy award winning <laughs> baritone, <laughs> uh, mostly baritone. Hi, baritone. Uh, who is passionate about housing and uh, is going to be developing uh, an app soon. <laughs> yeah, right. Airbnb Air and sing. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. John, thanks for coming back to Upper Box Square to talk about this. Thanks for having me. This just in the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. On December 17th, Lemmy Pulliam jumped in for Brian Yeade as Radames, making history as the first black man to sing the dramatic tenor role at the Met. Congratulations to Lemmy on the Met debut and boo to the Met for taking this long to have a black man not be just one of those Ethiopians trotted out on the stage with the pooping horses. The Met's website is back online and ticket sales have resumed over a week after a cyber attack knocked the company out of cyberspace. The ransomware hack appeared to be the work of a, quote, organized criminal gang, according to Met General Manager Peter Gelb. The Central City AGMA dueling statements continue this week, with Central City first noting that they had filed an unfair labor practices claim against AGMA for refusing to offer compromise counterproposals and defamatory statements. In response, AGMA blasted that as a transparent attempt to distract from Central City's own misconduct, noting that Central City Opera Statement was released moments after canceling a collective bargaining session with the union, scheduled for the following day. We have some thoughts. Bass John Tomlinson is speaking out against Arts Council England's decision to defund ENO that would force the company to move out of London. Quote, every singer needs a thriving musical world around them, said Tomlinson. You cannot develop your talent in a vacuum. This statement comes as members of Parliament argue back and forth about the defunding in Parliament and swirling rumors that Arts Council England may yet change its mind. La Monet, Chatelet Theatre, Aison Provence, Paris Opera, and Opera de Lyon have combined forces to form the Collectif de 1725. The new organization is researching and developing technologies to reduce the carbon footprint of opera and make the art form more sustainable. First on the table is the standardization of scenic components in order to transport them between houses more efficiently and to reduce the waste generated by tearing down and rebuilding. Hungarian State Opera will open a permanent exhibit to pay tribute to 83 employees who were dismissed and deported for dissenting during the Holocaust. The exhibit is based on the research of director Sylvie Gabor, who investigated the lives of these victims. In trade news, Tobias Kratzer will take over as intendant at the Hamburger Staatsoper in summer 2025, marking this the first time the acclaimed stage director will lead an opera company. Lili Pasakivi has been appointed artistic director and CEO of the Bregenz Festival. Pasakivi has been artistic director of Finnish National Opera since 2013 and previously performed in concert work as a mezzo. Luciano Messi will be the superintendent for the Teatro Reggio di Parma until 2025. He is currently the president of the Association of Traditional Italian Theaters. No, not Lionel Messi, although that would be interesting. Roger Weitz will step down as general director of Opera Omaha at the end of this year. Weitz began his tenure in August 2011 and helped the company earn accolades for its widely diverse programming. On the disabled list for all the remaining fall performances of Aida at the Met, the role of Amneris will be sung by Olesia Petrova, replacing Anita Rachvelishvili, who has withdrawn due to illness. It is the second cancellation for the Georgian Mezzo this season after withdrawing from Don Carlo and comes on the heels of Latonia Moore and Brian Jade dropping out of the current production of Aida. And on this day, December 19th in 1676, it was the birth of French composer Louis Clarambeau in Paris. In 1745, Italian composer Giuseppe Giordani of Carobio Ben fame was born in Naples in 1745. In 1881, it was the first performance of Massenet's Erodiad in Brussels. In 1888, Hungarian-born American conductor Fritz Reiner was born in Budapest. In 1890, it was the first performance of Tchaikovsky's Peak Dame. In 1931, 
American pianist Dalton Baldwin was born. Happy birthday uh, to American harpsichordist and conductor William Christie, born on this day in 1944. And happy birthday to, uh, to German baritone Olaf Baer, born today in 1957. In 1991, it was the first performance of Corleano's opera Ghosts of Versailles, which had its premiere at the Met. And that's your two-minute drill. You just heard the one and only Dmitry Vorostovsky singing Prince Yeletsky's aria from Queen of Spades, which premiered on this day. And we actually just passed the five-year anniversary mm. of his death a couple weeks ago. Can you believe, believe it? it? Time flies wow. by when you're in um, multiple world-ending crises. <laughs> but <laughs> so I mean, true. I remember that show we did five years ago. We were on air at that point at WNUR. And yeah, God, that yeah. was a tough one. But I mean... Him singing this aria, can you think of any other performance that's so iconic where you no. identify a no. singer with an aria? It's like, okay, if it's this aria, it's Vodoslavsky, you know? Is, is there anything? Yeah. I mean, maybe Kalas and Kostadiva. Or like Joan Sutherland and Esclar Monde, but that's just because, <laughs> like, who else sings L'Esprit de l'Air? <laughs> Last, uh, on this day as well, uh, on this day in 1917, it was the first game of the first season of the National Hockey League. Oh, wow. oh interesting. Nice. It was all Canadian teams at that point. And now there's like 30, 32 NHL teams. <laughs> so, all right, Matt, six. Matt, CCO versus AGMA. Help. Just make okay. sense of it. I like it when Matt gets sweaty, so I want so, to see what he has to say. <laughs> like, not a lot has actually happened since we <laughs> talked last week, except that Central City has decided to, like, try to hand wave their way out of this, probably because they heard how worked up we got on this show in particular. They were like, mm -hmm. oh, opera box score is coming for us. <laughs> coming, coming in hot. And so they're trying to file an unfair labor practice, uh, an, un an unfair labor practices uh, complaint with the NR, the National Labor Relations Board, which is not known to be particularly pro-management. So I kind of don't see why they think that that is necessarily going to help them if it's as transparent of a bid to just distract as it seems like it. Because the, the things that they allege are um, that AGMA is demanding the removal of the lead Central City representative, um, which, if they're saying that she behaved inappropriately, like, would be totally within bounds. It's not mm -hmm. unlawful, as they're trying to lay trying to state making false and defamatory comments we'll see um refusing to offer compromises and counter proposals to central city well central city really the ball is still in their court because they haven't responded to agma's proposals from th almost three weeks ago now and the whole reason why this open letter went live is because central city is trying to run out the clock and they mm -hmm. they disappeared mm -hmm. in the middle of a bargaining mm -hmm. agreement and mm -hmm. were and were in caucus for three hours before discontinuing the talks. According to AGMA, that was the last meeting that they have had, and Central City canceled the upcoming meeting that they were supposed to be having the day after they released this statement. Mm -hmm. um, it also should be noted that Central City has engaged Littler Mendelssohn, which is a law firm that specializes in management side labor negotiations this is the law firm that apple hired to try to, to try to crush unions this mm. is the law firm that starbucks hired to try to crush unions i really don't think that we have to extend them the benefit of the doubt here because there is not a single sign in this statement to me that they are acting in good faith yeah that yep. that's my piece you got it matt <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is this is just one of those things where it, it's only going to get nastier, and uh, Central City's definitely digging its heels in here. So we'll see what happens. Um, How dare you not respond to our offer where we tried to cut <laughs> sexual harassment protections for our singers? What's your compromise position? Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> like, An can absolute we, mess. Can we be in the real world, please? Like, come on. 
Well, and they're one of the, like, f- isn't their company, like, one of the founding members of AGMA or, like, has yeah. one of the longest relationships? Yes, they're, like, the fifth oldest house in the States. But, yeah, they have, like, a long-standing relationship with AGMA. This whole they, thing is very bizarre. They just keep mm-hmm. leaning back on that. That's what they say every time they get criticized. Just, like, we're so proud of our long history with AGMA. And I'm like, well, you have a funny way of showing it. <laughs> yeah, well, and, I mean, it, a, a lot of this swirls around, you know, their, their mention of Pantos, the leader at CCO, and being, like, under her leadership, all of these problems have been happening. We fear that negotiations can't go on. I think that's where they're getting this, like, defamation, blah, blah, blah. But the thing about Pantos is, like, one look at her LinkedIn lets you know a couple of things. Number one, her last two employment tenures have been real short. And two, um, you know, she's... Like she she taught at Babson. She's got an MBA from also from Babson. She's this like certified fundraising professional. It's like someone who ostensibly knows this much what they're doing. If what's happening under her is what they say is happening under her, like there's it, it doesn't make sense. It does not make sense. I am still trying to wrap my head around the like Met website takedown. Like <laughs> I just like why? Like why would you like let's be honest, like the number of people who care about opera in this country is phenomenally small. Well it's so like it's, why would you do that? Well presumably uh, if Peter Gelb's statement is accurate, uh it was a ransomware attack, uh which is pretty common. Like any company could get a ransomware attack like that. And like I I think that it's not a matter of uh, the prominence of opera. It's the fact that the Met is the largest performing arts organization in the United States. They've okay, got fair. money to pay a ransom, you know, in theory. Little um, do they know. And I also think that it might be an attractive target too, because, you know, a, a lot of the higher ups at, uh, you know, the Met, a little bit more conservative, a little older, a little bit more susceptible to the occasional phishing email, perhaps. Um, uh, there, there was also the speculation that we mentioned that week last week that that does seem to be just speculation at this point mm-hmm. it could have also been a targeted attack um from uh russian a russian cyber attack because you know a the met has been one very specific russian soprano who didn't <laughs> edit a trip go buy... personally higher <laughs> if they she's... can't buy tickets to see me they can't buy tickets to see anyone <laughs> she's in a dark concrete basement making like the set of hackers just like sweating and throwing her face on the keyboard yeah yeah. I, yeah. I mean, honestly, I just think somebody forgot to pay the GoDaddy bill. Honestly, I think that's what happened. <laughs> they, they send you an automated reminder, so I, I, I don't know why. <laughs> hey, look, the program at La Monnaie and Chatelet and X, look, with a name like Vincent, how can it possibly fail? That is the most pretentious use of numbers I think I've ever heard. The 5.25 p.m. collective. Yeah, 5.25. Does, I'm, try, I'm trying to figure this out. Does that mean anything? Like, I, what have I missed here? I, I, it feels like a colloquial French expression none of us understand. Is it like the clock is ticking on climate chaos? That's what I was wondering. Is like, yeah, are, okay. are they like, it's 5.25 before our climate change midnight. It's a very specific yeah. time, though. I don't think yeah. French people work past 5 o'clock. So there, you yeah. there you go. There you go. Yeah, that's absolutely <laughs> Yeah, who knows? Yeah. I, I think this is a really cool initiative. I, I just want to say I really, really like, because I, 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 I see a lot of arts organizations uh, not just opera companies in general talking about like we want to think about climate and and like sustainability and stuff like that. Uh, but I was really excited to see they had some kind of actionable stuff right off the bat with a standardization of sets and stuff. I'm like, wow, that's a very concrete idea that they could start right away, you know, and that's, you know, I think that's probably the biggest waste is the rebuilding and taking down and transportation of these huge sets. So figuring out a way to reduce that carbon footprint um, in a very actionable way was really impressive to me. Obviously, just a start, but like, I think that's a, I think it's really cool. Really cool idea. It is actionable. Although if you're not in metric, do you still get to take part? I don't know about that. <laughs> Tobias Kratzer taking over in Hamburg. What a great hire that is. He kind of came onto the scene and 2006 and 2008 he won a big opera director designer competition then this feels like a really good shift he's done some fantastic work and uh i mean he's got a couple years till he takes over hamburg that's a big important house wow and then on the way out ashley 
Roger White's in Omaha. Yeah. Speaking of people who have done some great work, you know, I mean, we know him now as as this face of Opera Omaha, but, you know, he's he's really had a larger impact over the greater Midwest over the course of about two decades. Uh, because before he was at Omaha, he was at Chicago Opera Theater and he did some amazing work there, put some really incredible systems in place and helped COT become known for, you know, the Brian Dickey years, as they were called. Um, but he's, I just... In addition to being like a good administrator and a thoughtful programmer, he's just an excellent, excellent human. And he deserves to get to rest and do whatever he wants because he has served the Midwest opera scene very well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Oliver, take us home with Lemmy Pulliam. Um, I mean, what else are to say? I mean, he's a fantastic singer. He just sang Otello with Cleveland Orchestra, I want to say. And everybody's just raving about just the voice that this guy has like mm-hmm. gorgeous incredible pipes dramatic uh formidable and uh yeah i mean i don't know how many black tenors there have been in the history of opera the recorded history of opera uh we know that russell thomas sings radames the met could have engaged russell thomas mm-hmm. to sing sing mm-hmm. that role yeah. years ago it seems like this happened by accident. I don't know if like Lemmy was actually scheduled for this particular run, but it happened and it happened, you know, by happenstance. So at least it happened. <laughs> I just think um, of so many, so many times the Meta's done Aida, like so many times. Yeah, it, this really. was genuinely shocking that this was the first one, uh, the first black person to sing Radames uh, at the Met. Uh, I just, I, I didn't even expect that one to be a, glass ceiling we had to shadow shatter but here we are i guess <laughs> let's wrap this show up good call bad call on opera box score good call bad call to wrap things up started off with oliver camacho well we were going to treat the audience to um our um reconsideration of christmas albums uh and i have to say for my other job i've been listening to a lot of opera singers singing Christmas. And I am going to come to the defense of Jonas Kaufman. I, <laughs> you I, heard it here first. I think that It's Christmas Literally. <laughs> is actually a fantastic album with some missteps. But it's a two-CD set. It's a comprehensive collection of uh, art song and Christmas music. Uh, and there's only a few tracks that are cringe. But actually, it's those cringe... <laughs> that make it actually so delightful because it's like, what were you thinking? And you actually I get- I don't want a lot for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want a lot for Christmas. I don't know why he's a vampire all of a sudden, but I, now I want to hear that. that so was anyway- little, That was a little more like Count Chocula, but anyway. We- uh, I know that he's been, uh, you know, uh, derided for this album but i i think it's actually pretty it's a pretty good record and he sounds great and there's a lot of music on here that uh he sings very very well just to be not, fair to be fair Mary i'm Carey, not sure so. that that anyone has heard any of the songs from it other than his cover of all i want for christmas is you it's all i want on repeat matt cummings what's your holiday pick I mean, I was also going in the recording recommendation realm because uh, I know at this time of year it's Messiah season and there are so many recordings out there and they are very, very different from each other. So unless you have a good idea of which one it is that you want, it can be really intimidating to pick one. And I want to cast my vote, if you're still looking for one and are looking to get down with some awesome choruses, for the one with Emmanuel Aim and Le Concert d'Astre from, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. Um, I think that Lucy Crow and Andrew Staples are really exemplary as the tenor and soprano solos in particular. And I like a fast Messiah, and this is a zippy one. Um, honorable mention would go to the Apollo's Fire one with Oliver's Bay, Amanda Forsythe. That's the soprano solo. Weston Williams got a holiday wreck for us. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I feel like I don't actually listen to a lot of Christmas music uh, by myself. Uh, it should come as a surprise to no one based on what I listen to that I'm more of a Halloween uh, sort of listener uh, of seasonal music. Um, but I, the the one I always end up listening to like pretty consistently is John Adams's uh, El Nino 
oratorio, which is just... <laughs> It, I mean, oh my it's, it's god Weston. really good oh, jesus only you could say that it's so good like it's and, and like it's not like it's not like edgy it's not not even particularly weird it like it feels very classic in terms of, it has those roots in that sort of messiah oratorio tradition while still being fresh and like the recording with don upshaw and w- willard white mm. uh, oh don gosh. upshaw of course has such a great christmasy voice it's so right. human and so flowing it genuinely works i mean obviously there's some you know, moments of fire and brimstone that might not be everyone's cup of tea, but most of it really feels, it just settles so nicely into the Christmas season for me. And that's the one I always go back to. I I recommend it. Ashley Hardgrave got a holiday recommendation for us. Well, I have a couple. I think our listeners should scroll back to our episode from, I think, two or three holidays ago, where we talked about all of the different versions of the Messiah, including the Quincy Jones produced album, including the uh, (laughs) contemporary Christian rock gospel version of the Messiah. It is a humdinger. It's very delightful. But if you're talking about what's in my rotation, it's almost always going to be Barbra Streisand's 1967 album, her Christmas album, and also Boys to Men's Christmas Interpretations. Both Jingle bells. (laughs) Really, really hard. Let it snow. It's such a good song. But what I want to do is close us out with a good call and a moment of inspiration for the opera world. So there's this guy at the Philadelphia Ballet. He's a board member. His name is Lloyd Freeman. And he has started this thing called Daddy and Me Initiative at the ballet. It is for fathers, father figures, specifically men of color, Mm. to receive discounted tickets and special programming for them and their children or the children figures in their lives to come to the ballet as a way Mm. to increase diversity, as a way to bring more, you know, men into into the ballet Mm -hmm. scene. Mm -hmm. It is it's such a cool, cool initiative at the Philadelphia Ballet. And I want opera opera houses to take note this daddy and me initiative is huge and it could be everywhere and it's such a delightful thing there's a bunch of little think pieces out about it right now so thank you lloyd freeman for your daddy and me initiative in philly and i hope it goes to more places now solve housing yeah (laughs) i do have it on good authority that everything was beautiful at the ballet i've heard that (laughs) my holiday recommendation is Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols from King's College, Cambridge. That is a holiday tradition in our family to listen to that live stream. For me, there is nothing like Christmas than the voices of boy sopranos and those men at King's College singing just some fantastic repertoire. Always a a newly commissioned carol as well. You always want to keep your ears open for that one. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. Click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. Send us that voice memo. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get the OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin. You can find links to everything we've talked about on our website, operaboxscore.com. It's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Help us cover our (laughs) annual budget. It's around $1,000, by the way. Just use the link on the donate page. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, and our guests, Graham Fondry and John Brancy, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you back up your data and change your password from (laughs) MET12345. We're back with a slate of all new shows starting January 12th. You're going to get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more 100% accurate predictions on all the sports matches. Join us.